Hello, everyone. I'm Chetan Bhatt. I'm director of the Center for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE, and I'm very uh, delighted to welcome you on this uh, evening, which is both overcast and very warm, to this important and special panel event hosted by the Center for the Study of Human Rights on Sri Lanka and the Culture of Impunity, Human Rights Challenges in a Post-War and Post-Conflict Environment. Now, the theme of this evening's talk is of considerable interest uh, to those concerned about human rights protection, not just in South Asia, but internationally. It raises a number of uh, important legal, theoretical, and other questions regarding questions of uh, peace after conflict versus justice, reconciliation, and so forth. Now, the vicious conflict in Sri Lanka ended, uh, ended in 2009 after more than a quarter of a century of violence with more than 100,000 people dying in the conflict and it's uh, resulted in uh, around 1 million refugees and it was one of Asia's most violent, destructive and intractable conflicts and the later stages of the conflict and especially the final assaults uh, in 2009 by the Sri Lankan military in its goal of uh, destroying the liberation tigers of Tamil Ilam and its leadership caused, uh, of course, as you know, considerable international concern, including very grave allegations of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, allegations against the Sri Lankan army, allegations against other groups working with it, as well as the LTTE and the abuses that were committed by it. Now, in the few years since active military hostilities ended, several international human rights organizations... Uh, as well as uh, organizations like the International Crisis Group, speak of a pervasive culture of impunity in Sri Lanka. It's been argued that there's been no progress towards constitutional and political reforms that address the problems of pluralism and democracy that lay at the heart of the conflict. Nor, is it, uh, it's argued, is there a legitimate process of truth and accountability for uh, wartime abuses. Instead, as our... Uh, Speakers tonight will explore Sri Lanka is steadily moving in the direction of becoming an authoritarian state with the rule of law and governance under attack, an attack on press and journalistic freedoms and journalistic independence, and the ascendance again of major majoritarian ethno-religious intolerance, and generally an overall decline in democratic and human rights standards. And the conflict, as I said, raises very acute issues regarding transitional justice, accountability for past abuses, and the challenge of transition from a conflict situation to one that guarantees peace, justice, and a strong democracy. So I'm greatly honored to be able to introduce to you some of the key figures addressing these issues internationally. Firstly, Dr. Paikyasothi Saravanamutu, who is also uh, known as Sara, who's sitting just here. And he's been executive director of the Center for Policy Alternatives since its inception in 1996. He's a convener for the, uh, of the Center for Monitoring Election Violence and is a founder board member of the Sri Lanka chapter of Transparency International. Currently, he's on the board of the Berghoff Foundation for Peace Support and a member of the Transparency Advisory Group on the Right to Information in South Asia. He has served as a member of the external review panel of the World Bank's post-conflict performance indicators. And in 2010, he was awarded the inaugural Citizens' Peace Award by the National Peace Council of Sri Lanka. 
He's well known for his work on the situation in Sri Lanka and has presented papers at a number of international conferences on security and governance issues. And I'm very grateful that you come here today. Our second speaker is Asanga Kala, who is an ESRC teaching fellow in public law in the School of Law, the University of Edinburgh, where he's a doctoral candidate. And he's also a senior researcher in the legal and constitutional unit of the Centre for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka. His most recent publication is an edited collection, The Sri Lankan Republic at 40, Reflections on Constitutional History, Theory and Practice. And thank you again for joining us from, from Edinburgh. And finally, and by no means least, I'm delighted to introduce Uvindu Kurukulasuriya, who is a visiting fellow in the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE, and I'm delighted to say he's also based at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. He's been a journalist for more than two decades and is the co-editor of Media Monitor. He's a freedom of expression activist, and he's a researcher and an artist. At the time that he was forced to leave Sri Lanka, he was a convener of the Free Media Movement and a director of the Sri Lanka Press Institute and Press Complaints Commission of Sri Lanka. He was a council member and executive com committee member of International Freedom of Expression Exchange and co-convener of the Centre for Monitoring Elections Violence. And he's the author of a reporting, uh, a book, a handbook for media, uh, media professionals published in Sri Lanka on reporting uh, human rights in Sri Lanka. His presentation is also going to be uh, different from the other two in including some visual material and slides. Now, the format for this evening is that each panel member will speak for about 15 minutes as an intervention. There'll be time for questions uh, from the audience and discussion about some of the issues afterwards, after the three presentations, and the event has to finish uh, just before 8, otherwise I get into trouble uh, with LSE security. But you're warmly invited to a reception to continue your discussions uh, with the speakers uh, which, which should be held just outside. Now, the event, including the questions and the discussion after the talk, uh, is being audio recorded, and we hope to have a podcast of the event online next week. Partly for that reason, can I also ask you to turn your phones to silent, please? And if you want to comment on the event using Twitter, the hashtag for the event is LSE Sri Lanka, which is displayed on the screen behind me. So can I ask you to extend your welcome to Sarah, who will be speaking first. Thank you, Trayton. Friends, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, first of all, let me place on record my appreciation and pleasure indeed to address an event at the LSE, an institution where I spent something like or overstayed my welcome of eight years, <laughs> some 40 years ago or something like that. Anyway, the topic that we have at hand today is the issue of Sri Lanka from post-war to post-conflict and the question of impunity. And I would like to begin with a clarification in terms of the terms used, because I think that's very important. I insist that since, 19, since 2009, Sri Lanka is effectively in a post-war situation. The guns have fallen silent. There is no war. But a conflict continues. And my argument is largely that everything that has happened since 2009, or in large measure everything that has happened, the trajectory of those developments suggests that 
we are still far away from a post-conflict situation because the sources of conflict are being sustained and they are also being reproduced. I think that's very important to remember because when you talk about Sri Lanka, you talk about reconciliation, the government has its own uh, report on reconciliation, a commission on reconciliation, it has a national action plan. There's talk about reconciliation in the portals of the Human Rights Council, etc. But the important thing to remember is that on the ground, what has been happening has been to sustain the sources of conflict and to reproduce them. Now, what I want to suggest to you here is this, is, is that Sri Lanka is not becoming authoritarian, it is. We have a government today which is essentially a dynastic project. It is a dynastic project which is underpinned by a majoritarian ideology, militarization, and an over-prioritization of a very centralized notion of economic development. All of this sustains conflict, reproduces the source of the conflict. From the point of independence in 1948, Sri Lanka used to be talked about as some kind of model southern global south, southern parliamentary democracy. And in a sense, I think, in the polity of Sri Lanka as well, we all subscribe to that notion that we were, in fact, a multi-religious, multi-ethnic society. We could lay claim to the trappings, albeit flawed, but nevertheless, a formal functioning democracy. All of that is now under threat as never before. And if I was to identify the threats or the direction of the threat, I would say they come from three particular directions. Not exclusively, but there are three that I would want to mention in particular. The first one that I want to mention, and this is, I think, very, very important to understand this, is institutionalized militarization in a country that was hailed as a functioning democracy in the global south for decades. Institutionalized militarization is a particular problem as far as North and East is concerned. But it is not exclusive to the North and East. And it is not just about the army, the military, the armed forces doing X, Y, and Z. It is also about a mindset, a mindset which goes on to say that only the military can do things efficiently. They are the ones who make the trains run on time. And in that sense, it is very much indeed the prelude to a kind of fascism. The military in the North and East are effectively the power and authority on the ground. I won't go into the full catalogue of what they do, but you have a situation in the North and East where in both provinces, the governors of those provinces are ex-military people. There are government agents who are military people. The military tells school children what language to sing the national anthem in. The military also, as General, I think it was Boniface Fernando or Pereira, the other day on the 19th of May came out and said that if families celebrated their family members who were killed, 
on the 19th of May or thereabouts 2009 that if they are LTT Qaeda, that is unacceptable. So the military is even telling people how to mourn, who to mourn, and whom to mourn. The military, in addition to that, plant vegetables, sell them, run boutiques, run hotels, and, as most of you may well know, we are in the throes of one of the biggest land grabs, if not the biggest land grab, that Sri Lanka has faced since independence. Over 6,400 acres of land in Balikamam North, in Jaffna, of private land, mind you, has been taken over by the military. The law of the land says that it should be taken over for a public purpose. We are told that it's going to house military cantonments, but we also know that there are hotels and there are golf courses as well planned. Over 9,000 people are affected, and of them, 3,000 have already gone to the Court of Appeal and to the Supreme Court to get some kind of redress. I actually happened to be there on the day this happened, and I tried to go into this area with the president of the Bar Association of Jaffna and a young man who wanted to see the home in which he was born some 25-odd years ago. The military disallowed us from entering. After a lot of argument and discussion, the military told us that the 9,000, if they came and wanted to see their land, would be taken around the parameter of the 6,400 acres. We laughed and said to them, why don't you take them up in a helicopter? They'll see a lot more. But this is the callousness, the simple disregard of basic human rights and dignity, which reminds one of the description, definition that Avishai Magalit, the Israeli philosopher, makes when he talks about civilized and decent societies, where institutions do not humiliate citizens, where citizens do not humiliate each other. Interestingly, whilst the landowners in Jaffna weren't allowed into the 6,400 acres, the United National Party made a reservation at a hotel in this, on this land in the name of the Boston Bomber, and the reservation was accepted. <laughs> well, that's by the by. So you have a situation there in which there is no civilian authority at the end of the day that has any say in terms of what happens. It is complete control by the military. But it goes beyond that. Some of you may well know that over 2,000 school principals in the country have been inducted as brevet colonels in the National Cadet Corps because they need the discipline of doing so. So there are some schools, and perhaps some of them are the alma maters of some people in the audience too. As far as official functions are concerned, they probably have to come all dressed up in uniform of some kind. They are brevet colonels, and we are told that they are going to be majors and perhaps major generals, I don't know. But as you do know, university entrants have to do an orientation program run by the military. Security on university campuses is provided by the military. So the military is in positions of civilian administration. The military are deputy ambassadors in all sorts of places, including at the United Nations, 
they are in other positions of government as well. And the Ministry of Defence, as you know, controls not only the armed forces, but the police force and the Secretariat for the Registration of Non-Governmental Organisations as well. And in addition to that, the Urban Development Authority. So it has its hands on a huge chunk of revenue and resources and has swallowed up a large, large part of civilian administration as well. The second issue, and I think Asanga will talk about this in greater length, though, is the complete collapse of the rule of law and the state capture that has gone with it, epitomized by the farcical impeachment of the Chief Justice. I should say the 43rd Chief Justice. The Sri Lankan media now refers to Chief Justice 43 and Chief Justice 44. We have one that's de jure and one that is de facto. The apex courts of Sri Lanka, the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal, have declared the impeachment unconstitutional and illegal. We have a number of cases in which no charges are made against ruling party politicians engaged in criminal activity. They include sexual assault, assault with the use of firearms. We have today a celebrated, well, celebrated is perhaps the wrong word, notorious case of Deputy Inspector General Vasco Nawadna, who has now been interdicted for the murder of a Muslim businessman. Four years ago, he and his son, and his wife too apparently, abducted a student, whistled with them, tortured that guy. The Attorney General at that time did not charge him. The Attorney General at that time is now the de facto Chief Justice of the country. <clears throat> That's where the impunity kicks in big time. All of you would have heard about Mervyn Silva, the politician, the cabinet minister. All of you would have heard about Duminder Silva, who was involved in basically a duel at noon in which a presidential advisor was killed. And he was taken off to Singapore and spent months in hospital there. He's back now. He seems to be perfectly normal, but there's one hitch. He says he can't remember what happened on that day. <laughs> Nothing is happening with regard to any of these people. After the impeachment of the Chief Justice, you had a situation in which members of the judiciary were transferred by the new de facto Chief Justice. So what you have there is almost complete state capture. You have the executive in the thrall of a dynastic project, a legislature which is rubber stamping anything and everything, of which almost 50% are part of the ruling coalition and they're ministers of one shape or size. And now you have an executive-friendly judiciary totally in the pocket of the executive. The third direction of threat, of grave threat, is religious intolerance. I'm sure most of you would have heard in the last couple of months about organizations called the Bodhubalasena and Singhala Raga, extreme 
Buddhist organizations. They call themselves Buddhist. I think that's a misnomer. They call themselves Buddhist organizations. Their particular target has been the Muslim community and the halal certification of food. There have been a number of instances where they have attacked the premises of Muslim businesses, indeed also attacked women in niqab. One instance which I think epitomizes the problem that we have was an attack on an apparel shop <coughs> in Papiliano where there were arrests. There were people in robes who were also arrested. The senior DIG for Colombo then made an announcement, Mr. Andra Sandaka is his name, and said that the proprietor of the establishment, called Fashion Bug, had said that he did not want to press charges because there were people in robes involved. Furthermore, to press charges would adversely affect the international profile of Sri Lanka. The DIG then went on to opine that this is indeed a wonderful example of communal harmony and amity in the country. No one asked the question of what the hell the police were doing. There was a criminal act committed. There is video evidence of that particular instance, and indeed a number of other instances, where the police are effectively looking the other way. Looking the other way. Bodhu Balasena in particular arrogates to itself publicly police powers. The other day it came out saying that it was going to cane people, I think it was, if their skirts were too short or something like that. Now, the issue here, of course, is that how does an organization and organizations like this gain the kind of prominence and instill fear in their fellow citizens unless they have political protection and patronage. And that's the point. The political protection and patronage comes from the Defense Secretary, who was the chief guest at the inauguration of the Bodu Balasena Leadership Academy, where he went on to talk about how the war could not have been won without the wisdom and counsel and guidance of the Sangha, and of organizations like BBS and Singularada. They have gone somewhat silent, but there are systematic attacks going on against the Muslim community and against Christian evangelical churches. But since they do not have as much high profile as they did before, it begs the question, is someone turning the tap on and then turning it off and then turning it on again? They are responsible for propagating a politics of absolute hate and hurt and harm. The propaganda is Goebbelsian. And however ludicrous it might appear to us, we all know, oft-repeated, it is a poison that percolates in the popular culture and becomes part of the conventional wisdom. Like, for example, that at some unspecified date in a couple of decades, Sri Lanka will be a Muslim country. That women shopping, singular women shopping at these establishments are given sweets that make them infertile. Absurd though it seems to us. This is what is happening. It has gone into the popular culture. 
So what I want to say to you is, is that we are descending deeper and deeper into a kind of darkness of mood, and it is not necessarily exclusive to the situation in the North. Talk about reconciliation is mere talk. Presently, the government seems to be involved in a clean-up operation. There are a number of provincial councillors, local government chaps, who have been accused of beating principals of schools and various offences like that who have been taken in. Vaskun of too was taken in. When he was taken in and questioned, it's now public knowledge, he ran an extortion and kidnap racket with protection over four years. He is supposed to have said to his interlocutors in the police, be careful, you know who I am. I'm a murderer, so take care. All of these issues poison and corrupt any pretense that we would have at government and governance. But there's also something much more, insofar as there is a vision, there is a notion of Sri Lanka as being multi-ethnic, a plural society, aspiring to the substantive elements of a formal functioning democracy, which is being threatened considerably. Economic development is being over-prioritized as a kind of panacea. But as a gentleman from Jaffna told me when asked the question, you know, how are things there? Isn't there a lot of development, etc., happening? And he turned around and smiled very sweetly and said, things look better, but they feel a lot worse. And that, I think, is the point. That, I think, is the point about reconciliation, about unity, about a feel-good factor with regard to the future of a country. Think for a moment. There are people jumping into boats and ending up on Christmas Island, leaving a country which is telling us it has fantastic growth rates and that it is the wonder of Asia. They're voting with their feet. So, for me, the whole question of impunity, the whole question of the sustenance of the sources of conflict and their reproduction paints a very, very bleak future indeed for my country. Reconciliation is going to involve a political commitment to repair a relationship, to recognize an interdependence. It's also going to require an acceptance of the truth, acceptance and acknowledgement of what has happened, and accountability may well follow. But presently, Sri Lanka is a land like no other, and it's a perverse metaphor. Thank you. Chetan, uh, thank you for uh, Windu also and Zoe for organizing this event and uh, uh, 
very pleased to be here uh, to share with you my brief tonight is to uh, <clears throat> talk a little bit about the constitutional dimensions uh, of the debate uh, of that process of transition that Sarah spoke about uh, in terms of our country uh, transitioning from one that is post-war uh, to one that is truly post-conflict. Uh, Sarah defined that in terms of a situation in which we have ended a very long and brutal uh, phase of military conflict, uh, and now we must uh, address our minds uh, to ensuring uh, that uh, <clears throat> that problem does not arise again. Uh, and in that uh, public discourse, a debate that we are all engaged in, uh, constitutional reform, the issue of the use of law uh, as an instrument of uh, setting up different kinds of institutions so that uh, we deal with our deep-seated problems of democracy and pluralism uh, is a particularly important aspect. Uh, <clears throat> but as lawyers are always want to do, they, they assume that that is the only aspect. And, and I'd like to say that uh, I, I see things differently. It is a, it is a much more broader debate, uh, but in which uh, I speak uh, very much as a lawyer and uh, tonight uh, I'm going to talk about some of those dimensions in terms of how uh, we can, um, we sh ought to be thinking about uh, the, the, the dimension of constitutional reform as an aspect uh, of ensuring that we consolidate uh, peace uh, in, in, in Sri Lanka. Uh, before I proceed, uh, this has been a fairly active year at the level of constitutional discourse so far. We are only in the middle of June, but we have already had uh, three proposals, significant proposals that have uh, been introduced into the public debate uh, uh, with regard to future constitutional reform, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But here is the way that I'm going to structure what I'm going to say to you. First, I want to just establish uh, the, the general context within which we undertake a discussion about legal and constitutional reform in terms of the situation that we have. Uh, secondly, I want to, uh, if you allow me to... to, to uh, set out four perspectives, four models uh, <clears throat> in terms of the, the ideal scenario um, that, ha that have been articulated in the public discourse so far with regard to post-war constitutional reform. In that framework, I want to introduce the three proposals uh, that, have, uh, that have been published this year, the one by the National Movement for uh, Social Justice, the one by the United National Party, uh, and, and finally the... Uh, uh, draft bill for the repeal of the 13th Amendment framework of devolution for the, the abolition of the provincial council system that has been proposed and uh, recently uh, put to parliament by the uh, JHU, the Jataka Hello Rumaya, uh, a very powerful, uh, small but powerful element of the uh, ruling coalition. And I will, uh, if time permits, Chetan, I would like to make some concluding remarks uh, uh, on, 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 on that. As a in, in many ways, uh, this is not something that I would uh, ordinarily do, but I would like to start off by making a, a, a bit of a distinction and also identifying myself, placing myself in the, in the middle of the debate, very much as a Sri Lankan patriot, but not a nationalist of any sort. And I think that is a distinction that is very much worth making uh, in, in, in the context that we live in, where it is assumed that if you, uh, to be a singular Buddhist nationalist is to be a patriot. Uh, in, 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 that's, a, that's, a, that's a perspective. Uh, unfortunately, that, that in, the, in the kind of po populist, uh, 
very euphoric, triumphalist political culture that has got instantiated, particularly in the singular-speaking South in our country, <clears throat> that one assumes that the ownership of the entire island belongs to uh, the dominant community. The dominant community has a dominant place in our polity, there is absolutely no doubt. But I think we have to admit, uh, if we are going to set about this with not only with sanity, but also with some notion of justice, uh, that Sri Lanka is and has always been and always has to be uh, a, a plural, multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic multi polity. And that is the, the, the perspective from which we must approach all of this. From that perspective, however, one of the most important things in terms of having a, 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 a state that is governed by the rule of law, is, uh, is, is governed by democratic norms, a very central element of that is the notion of the rule of law. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, as much as I would like to uh, paint a positive picture of what is going on, we, have, we start with an inescapable, inescapably depressing uh, uh, situation that has now arisen. I hasten to add that this is not something that, is, that has suddenly come out as a result of the present regime. It is, a, it is a progressive process that we have started at least since 1972, when we have started making constitutions on our own, very paradoxically. Uh, uh, constitutions that, that, that were left behind by, by, by the colonial power have been far more uh, successful in protecting conceptions of the rule of law and democratic government than the, than the ones that we have created since 1972. We have had two Republican constitutions, 72 and 78. But there is definitely a, 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 a sudden and massive deterioration uh, in the rule of law situation in our country. And I just point to, to two matters. One is, of course, as Sarah also briefly mentioned, the issue of the impeachment of the Chief Justice, uh, the 43rd Chief Justice. Uh, this was done, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but this was done uh, for uh, very well documented now. There are people who are here who have been involved in the documentation of it. Jeffrey Robertson, QC, the International Power Association, in addition to uh, our own organization, CPA, we have, we have documented uh, how, how this event happened. It was a, a very clear, very unconstitutional, totally illegal removal from office uh, of, of the country's, uh, the head of the country's judiciary and replaced by an individual uh, who is legally and constitutionally uh, a usurper in that office and uh, about whose conduct in, 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 that, in that role uh, no confidence can be placed as credible citizens in a democracy. Uh, that is the, the, the first thing to note, uh, among many, many other things. Uh, Sarah mentioned several other issues with the rise of vigilante groups uh, and, and, the, and the kind of uh, rule unto themselves that they have become. The second point I just want to note, uh, by way of uh, uh, preliminary into getting into what, what I really want to say tonight, is with regard to constitutional reform itself. We have seen the government uh, trying to introduce a 19th Amendment to the Constitution. It started off as a process in which it wants to cut back certain elements of the devolution settlement that is there, never properly implemented, never functioned as a viable framework of devolution for addressing the problem for which it was introduced. Uh, however, uh, that, was, that is there at least at the level of the constitutional text, even if it means nothing at all in practice. Uh, even this, now, they are trying to claw back. And there were two methods two ways that they wanted to do that. Uh, one was to uh, uh, repeal 
<coughs> the provision in the 13th Amendment that allowed two provinces to join together. This was an element of the Indolanka Accord and then some of the, the agreements that went on in the 1980s in order to enable the north and uh, eastern provinces to, to amalgamate together to function as one administrative unit. Now, this has been demerged by fiat of the Supreme Court for some time, but the provision allowing that in the future was, was, was not, nonetheless still there in the Constitution, and they want to remove that. This is a direct attack uh, on certain conceptions of autonomy that the Northeast, the people of the Northeast, desire. Uh, the second thing that they wanted to do was a major safeguard for devolution. That is that the central parliament, the parliament of Sri Lanka, is not allowed to legislate as it pleases uh, on matters that are devolved to provincial councils, uh, but they're, they're required through an uh, ordered process set out in the constitution to seek the views of, of, of provincial councils, and those provincial councils that uh, do not agree to the, to the measures are not bound by them. Now, this in no sense of the word uh, within the unitary structure of the state endangers the unity of our country. Uh, this is, uh, it has been made into uh, an absolute bogeyman of a provision which says that the, uh, <clears throat> against all of, of course, the, the, the contradictory positions taken about the war victory and the consolidation of, of, of national unity, all the rest of it, a very strong state. Um, nonetheless, it, it seems to be entirely insecure about a, non, a virtually completely unimplemented constitutional amendment with regard to devolution. But there is one thing that, this is ongoing at the moment, but there is one thing that I want to point out. And this is the way that constitutional reform has been done for a very long time in our country and, and is even more significant in the context of the post-war debate. <clears throat> because this is a historic opportunity for us uh, to, to, to deal with the problems that a, a previous generation did not. Uh, and one of the things about this is the issue of process. You can't have, we can't have in a functioning democracy, and a democracy, mind you, which is, for all its flaws, is the oldest in Asia. It has been there. Uh, we have enjoyed universal franchise since 1931 in Sri Lanka. This is a patrimony that is worth preserving. And when this is being attacked, and when our electorate, our minorities are brutalized, and our, cons or, or, and our, and our population infantilized, because the assumption when you do constitutional reform in the way that the government is introducing is that they know best. So they use the provision in a very problematic constitution, 78 constitution, uh, used for urgent bills. How can constitutional reform ever be urgent in the, in the sense of the cabinet merely discussing it and then sending it by secret to the Supreme Court, which is, as I said, populated by now <clears throat> a government loyalist. Uh, and then before anybody knows anything about it, something has been done to the fundamental law of your country. Constitutional reform, by definition of democracy, is something that should engage the widest possible spectrum of, of, of people, of public discussion, of, 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 in a 70-year-old in a, in a democracy. We should all have a say. We should all say what we have to say. And in, in, a, in a plural country like ours, it is even more important. But this, this government, and indeed governments before that, have assumed that uh, they can do as they please with the Constitution. So when the Constitution becomes a partisan, an instrument of partisan advantage, uh, it is no surprise, in my view, that those who are opposed to the Constitution are validly able to say that we are not bound by this. Because the entire moral foundation on which the citizens of a political community called the country are bound to that Constitution is lost. <laughs> So that is the, 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 
the, the background context within which we are now discussing constitutional reform in Sri Lanka. So let me just <coughs> summarize uh, the, the, the discourse, the public debates that are happening uh, around, this, uh, around this question uh, according to four models, if I may put it that way. I mean, these are stylized models that they, 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 they necessarily simplify. Uh, but in my view, uh, in the last four to five years, uh, the, the, the main perspectives of the constitutional reform debate can be uh, put into four different sets. The first one is what I call an illiberal democratic perspective or an ethnocratic perspective. This is a view in which the whole is a part. That is to say, <clears throat> it's an entirely majoritarian view of the state. It negates uh, uh, any notion of pluralism on any, issue, uh, any basis of equality. It privileges the majority community and its ethnic, cultural, uh, moral, political aims as the identity of the entire state. This was, after all, the story of our post-colonial history, and we ought to now know that this was not the way to do things. Having won a military victory over uh, uh, the LTTE, it is now a, uh, an opportunity for, for, for magnanimity to reach out to, 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 to uh, the Tamils in particular and the minorities in general. But the ethnocratic viewpoint with regard to the state would regard the military victory over the, over the LTTE as a vindication of its worldview that Sri Lanka belongs only to the Sinhala Buddhists. That is one. Secondly, and I will use the counterposition to that, uh, is the kind of liberal federalist devolutionist perspective. Uh, liberal Democrats, uh, a, a very uh, small and dwindling minority, I think we can uh, uh, count them uh, on, on, on both our hands at the moment living in Sri Lanka, who believe, who, who, who take the position that this is a plural society and a plural society that must therefore have a, a constitution that respects that pluralism. And in, in so far as territorial claims to devolution autonomy are made, that uh, adopts the normative position that those claims have to be met within the constitutional dispensation order of the state. So you will have different kinds of liberals uh, who, will, uh, who will support the, the, uh, you know, in a continuum between a devolution within the unitary state, the 13th Amendment as it is, or 30th Amendment plus, or to those who uh, espouse uh, a federal, altogether different federal constitution. That's a second perspective. The third perspective are the radical pluralists, as I would call them. And the radical pluralists are those who would say that this country has no single nation. We have, we have destroyed our opportunity to build a trans-ethnic, trans-cultural, Sri Lankan civic, demotic identity. Uh, consequently, we are reduced to, to, to having to deal with the, the reality of two ethnic nations and other ethnic and religious communities, a constitutional settlement <clears throat> that addresses the competing claims from this analytical perspective must respect that. It, it, it should not be too concerned about Sri Lankanism, so to speak, but rather a plurinational dispensation. Uh, and finally, I think this is the, insofar as the commentariat is concerned, if you read Uvindu's uh, uh, excellent website and, and, and many of the perspectives that are articulated there, uh, from uh, left-wing commentators to, 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 to those who have been uh, erstwhile supporters of the, of the regime, 
you will find this mainstream view. Uh, I call it the Jacobin view. Uh, and it is the view that is, that, 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 is, that is the standard orthodox. In many of our understandings of, of, of conflicts like Sri Lanka, we always also, uh, many of us also, uh, think that this is the, the, the way to go. I.e., when we ceased being a colony in 1948, the primary responsibility of a post-colonial polity is to build a post-colonial nation. It's a nation-building paradigm. We, we have ethnic and religious pluralism, we manage it the best that we can, but our civil and political rights emanate from the fact that we are Sri Lankans, that we are a demotic nation. And therefore, in this worldview, this constitutional worldview, ethnicity, religion, etc., must be a secular state, it's relegated to the private sphere, in public, insofar as the relationship between the state and the religion uh, and, and, and the citizen is concerned, it is citizen as an individual, as a Sri Lankan, as a deracinated model of civic political nationhood. Now, you will find many, and there are many in the audience here as well, uh, who I recognize as having written so much about, uh, about this particular position. The, the story there is basically, we fluffed the chance, we fought a war, we killed each other, uh, 30 years of death and destruction, now it is time to recommit to that progressive path of modernization and democratic nation building from which we deviated from the 1950s onwards. So let's all build Sri Lankans. Uh, I, in my personal view, that is a very uh, uh, morally uh, an extremely attractive perspective, but I am not sure how, how realistic that is. But let me just stop there. I, won't, I don't want to uh, substitute my own perspectives on this rather than to, to set out the, the, the four theoretical models that I've just set out and try and fit the, 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 the three proposals that I spoke about earlier, uh, having been published uh, this year, and try and fit them into, 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 this, into this framework. And let's start with the, uh, not in chronological order, but with, uh, with the UMP. The United National Party, I think, has come to them. This is my interpretation of things. I, I have no special knowledge uh, of, their, of their thinking. Uh, but I think in terms of reading the, the constitutional <coughs> principles that they have published, they have published a series of constitutional principles. Uh, they claim they are principles. I don't think they are principles, but they seem like more like a series of propositions uh, to do with democratization, with the reintroduction of the 17th Amendment, to deal with the... Uh, depoliticization of state, so many things. But I just want to focus on the, on the vision of state that is implicit in this, in this. And it seems to me to be the case that they have made a decision, an electoral decision, that their association with the 2002-04 peace process and their association with the, with, with the Oslo communique, federalism, self-determination, internal self-determination for the Tamils, their uh, pervasively uh, uh, minority-friendly perspective uh, not helped by the fact that in, in, the, in the South there has been a move in the singular nationalist direction. They feel that if they continue to be associated with that kind of perspective, they're never going to come back to power again. So consequently, the, the, the purpose seems to be to be here that they are going to re-establish themselves in the singular heartland, and in order to do that in their uh, view, it seems to be the case that they have to recommit back to, in very strong terms, back to the concept of the unitary state. Might I add, might I add, uh, because this has been such an important uh, as well as a neglected area uh, in, in, in constitutional debates in Sri Lanka, the, the fact that 
uh, united is always equated to unitary. One is a political concept of a, of a united country, the other one is merely a constitutional form, unitary, united and unitary. And we have tried and always failed to try and divorce the two ideas altogether. However, the UNP is back now to the unitary state and, and they are uh, trying to uh, uh, portray a view of a pluralist but single Sri Lankan nation, the, the mainstream view that I, that I identified. Then, of course, the JHU's uh, 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 bill. It is uh, very simple. There are two operative clauses. Essentially, those two clauses abolish the 13th Amendment. So with that goes the entire provincial council system, no abolition, pure unitary centralized state. But what it is what is interesting for is its long and rambling preamble. I used to work uh, in, in, in Iraq during the constitutional uh, drafting process of that country uh, post-invasion. And one of the things that we used to, uh, with some amusement, consider was the long and lyrical Arabic preamble uh, in the Iraqi constitution, the, the cradle of civilization, the, uh, the birthplace of mathematics and all the rest of it. The UN, the JHU's uh, constitution uh, proposal reads exactly like that. It is, it is a very, uh, uh, it's statutory language, it, it ex expresses some of the classic singular Buddhist nationalist arguments that have been made from Anagarika Dharmapala onwards in the 19th century. Whether it goes ahead or not is a matter of politics. Uh, I, am, I, I am not sure what will happen, but probably it will not become law. Finally, may I just say, uh, I am, Sarah seems to have uh, a more positive view of the creation of a, of a cross-party uh, consensus in Sri Lanka about the abolition of the executive presidency uh, and then the consequent rejuvenation of a kind of popular front uh, against, against the, uh, the, 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 the regime's more undemocratic uh, and centralizing tendencies. And the NMSJ, the National Movement for Social Justice, uh, who's championed by the Venerable Sobita, the, 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 the spearhead of the so-called Common Candidate uh, Program, uh, talks about abolition of the presidency mainly, but there's a very, very interesting clause. And if I may uh, be allowed, Mr. Chairman, with which I'm going to conclude, the, 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 the vision of state uh, which they have articulated, and in my view, represents one of the most fabulously creative and, and, and interesting formulations uh, that, we, that we might have uh, if we are going to both respect pluralism in, in Sri Lanka as well as maintain its united nature as, as, as one country. And it says like, uh, as follows. The peoples of Sri Lanka who together constitute the people of Sri Lanka have the right to develop their own language, protect their own religion, to develop and promote their culture, to preserve their history and the right to their due share of state power, including the right to due representation in institutions of government without in any way weakening the common Sri Lankan identity. They shall not in any way be construed as authorizing or encouraging any action which would dismember or impair the territorial integrity or political unity of the Republic. In many ways, I think, this is a, it's a wonderful representation in one paragraph of where we ought to be going, but, uh, but politically there is no chance that we will be in the short to medium future. Thank you very much.
Hi, uh, thank you, Chetan, for having me. Friends, uh, today <coughs> my task is to give you a uh, brief overview of Sri Lanka media situation and the, uh, some of my own experience uh, and with uh, some research data. Uh, I need to say something before. Uh, the Chetan explained me as uh, it's a lot of positions, but those all uh, volunteer positions <laughs> in Sri Lanka, my job was I was a single journalist, single language journalist for <coughs> nearly more than 20 years. You're too modest. Hmm? You're too modest to begin. <laughs> <laughs> to begin with, I would like to ask a question. Have you ever heard uh, any government giving free laptops, free laptops and 10-year interest-free loans uh, for journalists to buy vehicles, which uh, taxpayers pay the interest. Well, that is Sri Lanka, the miracle of Asia. So we, we can come to, we can come later, the impact of these free laptops and interest-free loans. Uh, I would like to share you some uh, research data with the uh, Center for Policy Alternatives and the International Federation of Journalists conducted uh, 2004. That was a time where peace process was going on and there, there was no uh, media suppression. Of course, there were isolated issues. Three, four, one of the police had beat me and arrested <laughs> But it's not politically motivated, right? Uh, those kind of things. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I need to accept that. Because this, that government promised for media reform, which they did. They repealed the uh, criminal defamation law and they introduced, uh, they abolished uh, press government, uh, press council, and they supported us, the industry, to establish uh, Sri Lanka Press Institute and the industry running press, com press complaint commission and the college of journalism and also uh, introduced the uh, right to information bill and cabinet cabinet approved it unfortunately president chandika bandarnayake dissolved the government so we don't have right to information and also the government appointed the committee headed by the opposition member, former Foreign Minister Lakshman Kadirgama, to recommend, uh, to give recommendation about on uh, contempt of court laws. In that situation, this data. <laughs> this is uh, CPIFJ. We interviewed 100 journalists. This is a good sample because in Sri Lanka it's 1,500, 2,000 journalists, uh, mainstream, uh, altogether mainstream, and the provincial journalists. Balance and... 87% of Sri Lankan journalists believe that Sri Lankan media is failing to provide accurate, balance and fair information. Ethics. Only half of Sri Lankan journalists aware of code of ethics. Only 11% of journalists have a copy of their ethical code. 
less than half of these have received training in ethics half been that from that 11% okay <laughs> that is the situation how do we perform sources more than 50% of this is me from media monitoring exercise more than 50% of the stories in sri lanka use only one source single source stories 80% of journalists think their sources are not accurate or reliable. That, in other words, four out of five daily lying. No really lying public. Okay, that is uh, the peace process time. Right? Then uh, after, fail, after the fail, uh, failure of the peace process, this is 2008, again CPA and IFJ, this uh, research which... Uh, I was responsible. <laughs> I did with CPA, other research team, and the CPA research wing, Social Indicator. We interviewed 101 journalists, 34 female and 66 male. We asked, do you think are the major human rights issues currently facing in Sri Lanka? We gave range of uh, human rights issues from discrimination against minority groups to gender, child rights, all, all of those things. But 50% journalists think the major human rights issue is discrimination against minority. Then again I ask, of these issues, which do you think are being underreported by the media? 46% again say, discrimination against minorities. Then we ask, of these issues, which do you think are being misreported by the media? 80%, more than 80% says discrimination against minorities. This is the situation, right? So we are talking about going to force conflict situation. A number of factors can affect accurate and impartial reporting on disadvantageous groups and minorities. Do you think are any of the following affect your reporting? See, see, official government censorship and unofficial government censorship is the most barriers. Then again, as which of which form of censorship do you think affect accurate and impartial reporting? Again, 54 percent, 55 percent says. Government official and 12% says government unofficial. This is the situation at uh, 2008. What is going on? After this research, there are uh, no media research, media research in Sri Lanka. I inquired from Sarato or media lot of people, there's no, there are research for child rights, little, some media monitoring exercise, no major research. You can download this whole research in this published in CBA website in the book. And uh, you can ask Sarah why. <laughs> the World Press Freedom Index uh, 2013 reported RSF ranked Sri Lanka. Mm. Where? Uh, Sri Lanka was uh, 162 out of 179 countries. Committed to protect journalists, 
CPJ rank 162 out of 179. Freedom of Press, uh, Freedom House rank uh, 164th out of 196. Country with the status not free. CPJ list 13 journalists killed since 2005, but numbers goes more than 40. Of course, all of them are not targeted as for their work. They are uh, victims of war. For instance, aerial attacks, uh, when traveling, claim of bombs, suicide attacks to politicians, those kind of. Uh, and again, all of these uh, killings were not by the government. Some of them were allegedly done by paramilitaries and LTT. Uh, I want to give some uh, uh, few examples. This is Dharmaratnam Sivaram, the editor of the Tamil Net and the military and uh, political columnist for English language daily media in Sri Lanka. Abducted night uh, April 2005. In front, in front of Kalamba Fort, Bambalapitiya police station and his dead body found in high security zone in the parliament, near parliament. His SIM card, phone SIM card was found in, the, in a pol Tamil politician vehicle. But so far, nothing has happened. In Subramaniam Sukhidharaja, Tamil journalist, killed. He was killed just week after reported on the January 2 killing of five Tamil students in Trincomalee. This is a very important issue. Uh, military spokesman initially said that the students are killed by their own grenade in the boats attacked by the army. But photographs taken by Sukhidharaja showed that the, uh, that the students died of gunshot wounds. He is the only witness, this uh, Sukhidharaja. So when I read uh, Wikileaks cables, President's brother, Ambassador Rajapaksa, his advisor told Kalam Ambassador uh, Robert Blake, we know the STF, STF Special Task Force, did it? But the bullet and gun evidence show that they did not. They must have separate guns when they want to kill someone. We need forensic expert. We know who did it. But we can't proceed it in prosecuting them. He told Robert Blake. This is in cable, which I can publish. So, the Deva Kumar killed uh, 2018 Jaffna, allegedly done by... LTT, the, our pre-media movement press releases and all. Then, Lasant uh, Vikramatunga, the famous case, right? Editor-in-chief, the weekly Sunday leader was killed, January 8th. Eight helmeted men, four motorcycles forced him to Vikramatunga's car to side of a busy street in high security zone, near army checkpoint and near Air Force Base. His office itself situated in a high security zone. It was burned a couple of times earlier. He was shot. Now, Isaipia. 
you all know in uh, this uh, soba she was uh, work for ltt televisions and their uh, news outlets there is a video film footage of uh, you you may have seen that this is she this is how she was killed i covered with this uh, you can see this black and white uh, last year the london based solicitor released uh, black uh, lot of clips i was almost every clip carefully then i found this this is it up here i found this this, uh, this in this body uh, her hands were tied and the when she dumped and maybe give, when given to red cross the hands were untied so this is how she was killed uh, i can give a couple of dozens killings this kind of but the the other form of things hundreds of uh, abductions uh, harassments intimidations happened nothing has happened so far nobody has been brought to book the kid uh, was abducted and beaten after he wrote an article title army is not its commander's victim right he was beaten his leg was broken right the bota rajabak the president's brother secretary of the ministry of defense told president and secretary of the working journalists association there will be no investigation no one will be able to find out what happened to keith he told we have the affidavit asangada vannu record at affidavit that time right from them the whole conversation had with the ds gotabe rajapaksa then poddala jayanta he was the secretary of the uh, working journalists association he left the same week as i left the country but, but he had no visa they went to as a group they were in bangalore and then went to nepal and seeking asylum from a safe country <coughs> he couldn't cope it took months there no support very little support from media organization he decided to go regardless uh, uh, advice he was given so he was abducted his both legs were broken and dumped now he is living in america i saw him today this evening 2-3 hours ago i was interviewed at mtv for 5 minutes in new bulletin tomorrow he podala uh, was is going to talk because it, uh, there was a clip it was very sad to see him permanently disabled both legs uh, broken so that notorious minister sara mentioned marvin silla told onnea publicly told i am the one who chased podala jant from sri lanka he also warned some others including sara who he claimed were traitors that he would break their limbs in public <laughs> so no questions nobody uh, the police never question you know they udaya the only regional newspaper located in jaffna six out of eight brigade located in north and east uh, heavily militarized area so last month uh, no april it was attacked twice presses were burned 
circulation office were attacked and editors were attacked uh, for this was the 30 last uh, april attack was the 37th attack for the udaya newspaper their newspaper vendors were killed uh, circulation managers were killed couple of journalists were killed while the war was going on the other the the, the Sri Lanka, the other issue is changing ownership. So I wrote a couple of years ago this phenomenon, this kind of Berlusconi effect, just changing uh, all ownerships. The popular, it's no problem. He asked uh, the, the popular newspaper, one of the popular established newspapers was The Nation, published uh, three dailies, <coughs> single and English and uh, week, weekend power, summoned the owner. I want to buy this newspaper. There's no choice. Then President's cousin, one cousin bought uh, 51%. The other one called Nilanka Rajapaksa bought uh, uh, other 49%. This is end of the story. <coughs> uh, and <coughs> other newspapers, uh, uh, singular nationalistic newspapers like Island and Divine, uh, owned by uh, government, one government minister's uh, brother, Welgama, uh, he was given a chairmanship of the Sri Lanka Telecom, the country's largest uh, uh, telecom provider that's controlled. The other one, uh, it was a popular newspaper, Lakbima, run daily Lakbima and Lakbima News English, owned by opposition member. Chilanka Sumutipala, inviting him to ruling party and gave him an organized <laughs> force in the government. Now it's controlled. Then the notorious uh, Sara mentioned that Dominda Silla. He was earlier the UNP member and his family owned uh, one popular radio station, ran three, all three languages Sun FM, Hiru FM. So they cancelled their license. In following week, this guy crossed over the government. Their license was given. Now it's all, all control. That's that happening in Sri Lanka. The story of Pedrigar Jans. After <coughs> Sunday leader was bought by the... And even Sunday leader, Lasanta Vikram Tunga's own newspaper was... The president managed to change the ownership. Now he's owned by his own catcher, <laughs> his own man. Uh, president said, uh, Lasanta was uh, killed by General Fonseca three times to Lalvik Kumbhuja, his brother. Right? So if that is the case, then why they were not, uh, why there is no case against Fonseca. But the fact they are hiding is, before, six months before Lasanta was killed, President offered him 400 million. He told him he wanted to buy the Sunday Leader newspaper. But entire Sri Lanka newspaper cover up that story. Nobody wrote it until I wrote it to index of censorship. Even no newspaper, reproduce it. They are scared. That is 
because then people know the connection, no? Six months before, President wanted to buy <laughs> this newspaper. So uh, after that, this newspaper was bought by uh, Rajapaksas, his editor was uh, uh, advised not to write anything about Rajapaksas, but uh, one case, uh, editor wanted to phone the Gotabe Rajapaksa. So she told, he, they been asked a question. Uh, defense secretary told, they will kill you, you dirty fucking shit journalist, you are pig who eat shit. I will put you in jail. You know, that is the way. But not a single editorial written about this uh, case. No condemnation. All other, uh, all other newspapers, what they did, interview Gotabe Rajapaksa and try to justify, she provoked me, you know. This language is normal in America, those kind of things. <laughs> right? She told, you're trying to show otherwise from true Singhala Buddhists, you are helped by US Embassy, the NGOs, Pachasoti. <laughs> right? That then let's look at uh, briefly about this impact of the interest-free loans, right? So almost uh, all uh, journalists belong to all media institutions applied this interest-free vehicle loan, 10-year. <coughs> but the interesting thing is on, on, only one journalist refused to accept that free laptop. He, in writing, written to president, I don't want this. Is there president of Working Journalists Association, worked where I worked, worked where I, I had been working for nearly 17 years. But the interesting thing is, BBC, World Service, employees also apply this law. Okay? They are paid by British, BBC World Service. Living in UK, one guy living in UK for 18 years and senior editor and the other one living in Sri Lanka but employed BBC World Service for more than 30 years. He applied. So what I did, we investigate this and publish this. Then uh, Sarah as a uh, founder member of Transparency International and all he condemned that. Former editor Vasantaraja condemned that. Then uh, opposition leader exclusively told Karam Telegraph is going to write Lord Patton, right? Investigate your journalists. Then what these BBC journalists did, they manipulate and they use their political influence to suppress that letter, right? Then we expose story by story. Then uh, <coughs> editor of the BBC, Singular Service, denied, denied saying, we will not going to accept this loan. When I found the documents, he himself recommend their employees to give this loan to the government, right? So he is knowingly misled the public. Then at the, at the end, one concerned citizen, UK British citizen, complained to BBC. Initially they said, no, no need to investigate. Then he went to second stage. Then they said, uh, then they again said, no, we are decided not to, we advised uh, our journalists not to accept this loan, right? Okay. Then, then what happened? 
at the end they accept it's a conflict of interest and they have breached their code and they were going to compulsory training for a conflict of interest. Can you believe BBC journalists working in for 30 years going for training again for ethics, right? <laughs> now again, a uh, lot of uh, articles have been censored, famous columnist uh, articles were censored. Uh, let me, give me one minute. Right? Okay? I need to quote this because this is what's happening. Um, the popular weekly column, uh, he's been writing for this for more than a long time, uh, notebook for nobody. He wrote a column in March 2013, but one paragraph was censored. The important paragraph I want to Read, read you. Last year, C.A. Chandrapayama, the political writer, wrote Gota's War. Eulogizing Gota by Rajapaksa's contribution to crushing the northern insurgency, indirectly rubbishing claim that Sarat Fonseca's army command was the principal architect of the military victory. That is the book Sarat, the studio bought me. <laughs> but that book was written and published before the discovery of the mass gave Matale. In that book, in the 28th chapter titled The Second JVP Insurrection, the author makes an unintended revelation. He writes on page 137, on 1st of May 1989, Vimalaratna being, I need to censor that, okay? Long, right? <laughs> With this promotion, he posted to Matale uh, as a district coordinator and officer task we bring the JVP under control. The first Gajaba battalion, which had been in Trinkumali for nearly one and a half years, was brought down to Matale. Lieutenant Shavyendra Silva, Jagat Dias, Sumedha Pereira were among his company commanders in Matale. Kota remained the security coordinating officer of Matale until the end of second <coughs> JVP insurrection. In January 1990, he applied for three months' leave and went to USA to see his family. In view of these facts, it became all more necessary for an independent probe to conduct, uh, probe to be conducted so that Rajapaksa and or anybody else are cleared of any war crimes in 1989. It may be <laughs> ironic that the Persons being accused of war crimes now are the same person who were then in charge of Matale. An independent probe may reveal they are innocent, but a probe by a body unconnected with these uh, persons is necessary to show this. This entire paragraph was censored in Sri Lanka. And again, I, 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 I have no time, but I got Chisarani Gunasegra's column uh, censored, right? And now what the Sunday leader is doing, they, they reproduce the Tisarani Gunasekara's column from Colombo Telegraph, saying, extracted from Colombo Telegraph, and then deleted all remarks to Rajabaksas. Right? Last thing, all uh, politicians' sons, when, poli when the politicians' sons attacked to an uh, ordinary citizen, all newspapers reported, including Moavin Silla's son attacked people, right? Uh, uh, <coughs> S.B. Disanayaka's son attack, 
people ruling party, another minister, Maitripala, Sirisena's son, attacked another person, all were reported. Nothing happened, but reported. But last month, President Rajapaksa's younger son attacked rugby referee, right? None of Sri Lankan media reported that, right? It's only Colombo Telegraph reported that, right? They were, but Rave, one single newspaper, it came after six days, they published the story. Instead of questioning, reporting this, privately owned, the newspaper organization owned by opposition leaders, maybe. It was also controlled by laptops and all, right? I have to uh, ask you to yeah. close up the because we're really Finish. running out of time. Uh, then they, what they did, uh, interviewed him, interviewed him, not a single question asked regarding this issue. Thank you so much. Can I uh, thank all of our panel for a powerful, uh, actually quite chilling uh, uh, set of presentations and also for your generosity and indeed bravery, actual bravery, in coming to speak to us this evening. <coughs> We've got... Uh, only about five minutes, I'm afraid, for questions. So uh, can I uh, uh, suggest that uh, if you ask your, when you ask your question, uh, if you could address it to uh, one of the speakers on the panel, and if you could also say your name and the organisation you're from, and um, it might be best if we just took, say, uh, two or three questions really quickly first. So the person at the... My yeah. name is Siva. I'm a where somebody at the top is turning the tap on and off of violence against the minority, the Muslims now, and his hands This has been going on since 1958. I was only 10 years old, living in Glasgow. My house was attacked. You know, innocent women and uh, children were there, by, headed by a Buddhist group. And then every three, four years, they will turn the tap on and off against them. At the time, they didn't touch the Muslims. And the, the foot soldiers, when the tunnel started hitting back, the foot soldiers stopped, and then in the 70s they started aerial bombing the Japanese and the East. So this is not something new, unless the Sri Lankans and the international community realize this. Otherwise, this will just keep on doing. There is something. The core is rotten. Okay. The core that is rotten. Okay, so that's. Okay, so okay there's a, the, can, I, can, I, uh, can I just take a, a couple of other questions? That's a very uh, important point, which is about the organization of violence against minorities. So there was somebody else at the back, yeah? Uh, my, um, Alex Wilk from the International Bar Association. Um, I'd like to ask Sarah, um, regarding the uh, forthcoming Commonwealth of Government meeting uh, in November and the fact that Sri Lanka will be chairing office for the Commonwealth for the next two years, um, do you see it as a, the, the increased scrutiny as a kind of window of opportunity for, for change, or, or, or do you think it just sort of is giving the Shalantan government a license to sort of, uh, legitimise what it's doing? Okay, thank you. And yes, sir. Uh, a question for Asanga. It's, it's, it's about your, your closing statement where you talk about the, an ideal situation where a paramount united Sri Lanka in a unified cultural society 
is, is created, where the paramountcy of unification of Sri Lanka is in conflict with the territorial integrity of Tamil and the Sinhalese people. Is that not an excuse for land grab? That was the question. Okay, there's three very interesting, very uh, penetrating questions. So, Sarah, do you want to? Again? Yeah, Alex, with, with regard to the first question and the holding of the Trogan in Colombo, I think it's an absolute sham. I mean, it's rather ironic that, uh, you know, you have the Commonwealth principles now enshrined in the Charter, and for two years you're going to have a government uh, chairing the Commonwealth, which has allegations of war crimes against it, two resolutions of the Human Rights Council in Geneva uh, with regard to it. I mean, it's entirely possible that uh, the government could well spin the children to its political advantage domestically. It's, it's a great challenge. Okay. I thank uh, very quickly, there's a very long answer to it, which we probably can uh, do afterwards, but very quickly. Yes, I, I agree with you to the extent that you have an unreformed state uh, within which you are going to embark on that kind of thing, then there is absolutely no possibility that you can have uh, a genuinely plural settlement because the dominance of one permeates everything else. Uh, however, it is at least theoretically possible to, uh, to imagine a situation in which uh, the plural communities and nations which are two different things, uh, are all recognized in those terms, but within the overarching uh, 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 umbrella identity of a, of a United State. Okay, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes, but I'm going to try something, which is try and get three more really quick questions and uh, statements in. Lady at the front. Um, my name is Natasha, I'm an individual, but I happen to be a lawyer. Um, I, I just wanted to say when Sarah was speaking, I was really interested in what you were talking about in terms of the land grab, and it reminded me very forcibly about the situation uh, of the Palestinians. And um, what I was going to say is really, are we not in reality talking about an army of occupation in, in the Tamil areas? Well, that term has been used quite frequently. Okay, and there's a question from the gentleman at the back with the pink shirt. Julian yeah. Sarin from Middle East Technical University. Uh, it, it struck me that Sarah's uh, uh, um, uh, presentation uh, spoke very closely to the Turkish position, uh, and I wanted to just emphasise two things. One is to, to uh, the use of the word fascism to describe uh, the politics of this, uh, and secondly, in relation to your emphasis on the, uh, uh, the militarism and the, the institutionalisation of militarism, uh, in, in the Sri Lankan case, uh, has has so many uh, echoes with uh, what's going on in Turkey at the moment, and therefore I just wanted to emphasise the international constitution of the Sri Lankan question as well, and perhaps uh, 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 have a more comparative sense, which I think I, I appreciate. You all. And in fact, we have a meeting on Turkey on exactly that issue next week. Uh, and the gentleman just behind you, yeah. As I mentioned, the JHU's constitutional reforms mentioned undergoing the government. So, Darwali is somebody who has been explicitly racist in the freedom struggle, and who kept Tamils away from the freedom struggle, and who kept Buddhism from going to Tamils. And then these are the characters uh, who are venerated and deeply, you know, their racism deeply entrenched in the ideological, political uh, thinking of the normal citizens. 
Okay, that's a very, very uh, good question. Can I ask Ovindu to deal with the last question first, very quickly? No? Okay, Sarah, do you want to? So that we've had three questions. One is, one is, one is on, on the uh, comparison with the army of occupation, uh, whether one can make comparisons with Palestine. The second question was around the institutionalization of uh, militarism and whether one can make uh, comparisons with Turkey. And the third question was around uh, the entrenched racism within a society that is linked to communism and religious supremacy. Well, with regard to the, the international combative dimension, what are the opening lines from Anna Karolina about unhappy families? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are lots of them. And I think for us, I mean, what's interesting is, is that we get Burmese civil society coming to visit us and say they want to learn from us. <laughs> and the other day we had to sort of turn around and say to them, you know, yeah. You're going where we should be going, and we are going where what you're leaving behind. Kind of thing. You know, there are there are very very sharp similarities, I think, particularly in the Burmese case, uh, with regard to Sri Lanka. You know, and it's not surprising, indeed, that uh, our government is doing its utmost to strengthen relations with Turkey. There was a small matter of Turkey also being part of the council, I think, at one stage, the Human Rights Council. Okay, I think we have run out of time. Uh, before I give my formal thanks, can I remind you about a couple of uh, important events organized by the center? One of them is tomorrow. It's on Turkey, and it's on lesbian and gay families in Turkey, or rather the uh, children of uh, families who are growing up to be lesbian and gay. And uh, this is a film showing. Now, I understand it is fully booked. But uh, and, uh, if you do turn up, there are likely to be some spaces available in the evening, so please do come if you're interested. And on Wednesday, the 26th of June, again at 6, we're hosting a very important open forum to discuss what is happening right now in Turkey. And it's going to feature a panel of Turkish scholars and activists, as well as a live link to Istanbul. So please uh, make a note of that. Information about both events is on the LSE Human Rights website. And uh, you can also sign up to receive uh, our email alerts or follow us on Twitter at LSE Human Rights. I'd very much like to thank our speakers, Sara, Asange and Ovindu, for their really brilliant and challenging presentations this evening. And can I also thank you for your very helpful contributions. I'm sorry we had to rush at the end, uh, but it was still, nevertheless, an extremely stimulating discussion. Please do come and meet our speakers for a drink just outside this theatre. Thank you. Thank you.